0: news weather traffic money politics big interviews and bold opinions it's what's happening
1: right now this is
2: mornings with simmy you
1: this hockey canada story just keeps seems to keep getting worse so we heard this morning now that hockey quebec is cutting ties with Hockey Canada. That organization actually voted last night saying it no longer has, quote, confidence in the ability of Hockey Canada to act effectively to change the culture of hockey with the structure in place. They are suspending the registration fees that they usually pay to Hockey Canada. That is a big blow. Well, what brought this about? have a feeling the testimony yesterday had something to do with this. Hockey Canada's board chairs, past and present, were defending Hockey Canada's handling of sexual abuse allegations dating back years. They continue to maintain that appropriate steps were taken despite widespread criticism. Have a listen to the chair of Hockey Canada, Andrea Skinner. With This is a little bit of her testimony from yesterday's proceedings in front of the House of Commons Heritage Committee.
3: Our board does not share the view that Hockey Canada should be making more leadership changes at this time. I think stability is an important consideration, especially in view of the fact that we have an entire board that's up for election in just in just a couple of months' time. And I don't think it's in the in the best interest of hockey or Hockey Canada for for this organization to be destroyed. I, I don't I don't think that a mass exit, if all the board were to resign and if all of senior management to be replaced, who would they be replaced with? What will that mean for hockey? I think that there is a significant risk to the organization if all of the board resigns and all of senior leadership is no longer there. I think that will be very impactful in a negative way to our boys and girls who are playing hockey. Will the lights stay on on the rink? I don't know.
1: What will that mean for hockey that apparently these people have to be there in order for the lights to stay on at the rink? No wonder people have a lot of problems with what was said yesterday. But let's get an update more on what is happening now. Grant Robertson joins us. He has been covering this story extensively. You can read his work at the Globe and Mail for sure. Grant, thank you so much for being back with us.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: What did you think of that testimony yesterday? I thought it was really quite something.
4: It was, I, I think a lot of people were surprised at how combative um, the the yes. session was. You know, after after the hearings in July, which were really Um, I think tense between the federal MPs and, and hockey Canada because the MPs um, were insistent that the, you know, the answers they were getting from hockey Canada weren't sufficient and they weren't, you know, key facts weren't being disclosed in the summer. Um, I think there was a sense that perhaps these hearings might go differently, but um, the tension seemed to be ramped up um, a little bit more. Um, And that clip you just played, um, I think that that comment um, caught a lot of people off guard in in how alarmist it was. You know, certainly certainly afterwards, a few of the MPs, um, you know, were 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 quite surprised that they would insinuate the lights would go off in the rink. If you know, if if there's a replacement of board members or if executives resign at Hockey Canada, Um, I, I I think it was sort of looked at as hyperbole in the end.
1: Yeah, they, the impression I think that people got watching it and listening to it is that they, Hockey Canada seems to feel they are hockey in Canada. So, you know, I think it, it, obviously that testimony did not sort of achieve what they wanted to. But you also had a story this week, Grant, that talked about yet another fund that Hockey Canada had. Can you tell us more about that?
4: Yeah, I mean it fits into this broader issue with with this whole story. I mean, what what the the problems hockey Canada is now faced with are really about disclosure and transparency. Going back to the original allegation um about sexual assault involving the 2018 uh world, some players on the 2018 World Junior team. You know, that only came out when when TSN got a hold of the court documents in in May that there was a settlement. Nobody had known that this was even an issue that there were allegations. What the allegations were, and then once once it came out after the settlement, um, and 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 people saw how troubling the allegations were, um, you know, MPs in Ottawa looked at that and said, "Why was this?" The you know the way they see it, this was a cover up. Um, which Hockey Canada denies, but um, then details to come out since then about you know Hockey Canada having um, funds used using registration fees um, from from you know parents and players across the country to settle sexual assault claims that was something also the MPs in ottawa didn 't know and didn 't feel there was sufficient disclosure on, and so It took until July to find out that they used a fund called the National Equity Fund, which comes from everybody's registration fees, um, to settle this $3.55 million lawsuit relating to the 2018 team uh, for an undisclosed sum. What we found out in more recent weeks is that there was uh, another fund uh, that Hockey Canada and its members, so the provinces uh, the provincial hockey associations um, had had set up using money from the National Equity Fund. They took about seven million from the National Equity Fund and put it into this trust, um, which did similar things it It was to shield against uh, potential sexual assault claims. Um, Uh, for for the provinces from a a specific period uh, from 86 to 95 before Hockey Canada began to buy insurance for liabilities such as sexual assault which it does now they buy a lot of insurance for this and what it what it indicated and what really I think upset MPs in Ottawa about this is it's it's another fund that they weren't told about and they had asked at the hearings in July you know how how is this handled you know what What funds are used? Can you disclose everything? And I I think they were surprised that this wasn't proactively disclosed by Hockey Canada.
1: Well, yeah, they're asking very pointed questions and kind of not getting that information. Were you surprised to hear about Hockey Quebec saying, we're not going to send money to Hockey Canada anymore? Do you think more provincial federations could do this?
4: this is going to be really interesting to see because a lot of people have asked the question well what what happens now i mean clearly the government does not support hockey canada you know they're calling for the executives to resign they're calling you know for the board members to resign you know the you know everybody from the prime minister down to the parliamentary committee has said you know they've lost confidence in hockey canada but beyond that, what what levers does the government have other than pulling its funding, which it's already done? That's the big question here going forward. You know, what more can Ottawa exert uh, on Hockey Canada? They're doing a full scale audit into Hockey Canada now. That's going to be, you know, potentially interesting in, in terms of what what it digs up. But the the provincial hockey associations have uh, a lot of power um, on the direction and future of Hockey Canada. So. In doing this this morning, um, or uh, I, I suppose last night, uh, you know, the Quebec Association doing this—it's it's the first one, but it's it's quite significant, I think.
1: It does seem like that too. So, okay, what are the next steps here? What's going to happen now? From what you see?
4: Well, as we found out yesterday. Um, uh, the minister of sport has approved a, a, a deeper audit into hockey canada and in doing that they want to this is this audit's going to go back to 2016 they announced a smaller audit earlier this year when uh, you know word of the the settlement broke um, initially the government wanted to know, was public money used for this? Was federal grant money used? Because they give Hockey Canada millions of dollars every year in grant money. Was that money used? And so they, they launched a smaller audit for that. And we found out since then, I mean, Hockey Canada was quick to tell its sponsors, its major sponsors, Scotiabank and Canadian Tire and Tim Hortons, we did not use your money for this settlement. Uh, because the sponsors were concerned that their money would be linked to sexual assault uh, right. allegations. no, They didn't want that. And so the, the Hockey Canada was quick to tell the government and sponsors that their money wasn't used. They weren't so quick to tell parents and players that registration fees had gone into this. So this deeper audit that the government is now doing back to 2016 is, I think, going to pull apart um, the the various funds that Hockey Canada operates how that money's spent, you know, there's been, uh, you know, allegations made that, you know, the board has spent excessively on, you know, things like hotel rooms and dinners and, you know, or that Hockey Canada has spent excessively on this and, you know, bought championship rings for the board members. So they're going to be looking deeply into that. And I I think, you know, when the results of that audit come out later this year, um, you know, we could see more hearings.
1: Oh, boy, more to come. Grant, thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, think back to when you were in school. Do you remember the tough teacher? The one whose class you always tried to avoid because they assigned so much work and it was such a tough class. I think everyone remembers a teacher like that. Maybe you had the class, maybe you avoided it. But is that becoming a thing of the past? Our Raji Sohal joins us now with a very interesting story. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. This story is, yes, so interesting. So a prof at NYU
0: New York University was dismissed because enough students complained via a petition that his course was too hard, his standards were too high. That course, unsurprisingly, I guess, is organic chemistry. Simi, this is known as a weeder course. So you need to get it to get to medical school. It's a, It's one of the foundational courses. It's also notoriously hard no matter what school you take organic chem at. So you're not going to get perfect scores in it. But if you have a passion for understanding how organic chemistry relates to medicine, then you're going to try really, really hard to squeak by with even maybe it's just a C- minus or a C. And if you're used to getting straight A's, that's really hard. But that is the kind of tenacity that we want and that we need for certain positions in society. And I have had a lot of friends take organic chem at university level. They just got their butt Kicked. And I remember when my sister was at UBC and she'd hit every course out of the park, no problem, on her journey to med school until she did organic chem. And she had the highest grade in her class and that was hovering at 60%. 60%. <laughs> to be fair, and it was with such,
1: the story it was is so to her ego. Oh, I'll
0: bet. And that's what we're talking about. I'll we bet it is. We're talking about a generation, Gen Z, and this blow to their ego that apparently they can't
1: handle. To be fair to and to this instructor too, he is he's a legend. He is he's yeah. he wrote the textbook on our literally, I mean that. He wrote the textbook on organic chemistry. He changed the way it was taught from rote memorization to having people do more problem solving. He's a legend in the kind of he's organic chemistry industry. And he noticed, he said, even just like coming up to the pandemic, students were kind of not doing as well. He said, but really after the pandemic, things went off a cliff. People are not able to cope. There were so many complaints. People had signed a letter against him. And so then they they let him go, essentially. And he said, listen, how are we going to have these people be doctors if they can't meet this challenge?
0: There you go. He said they weren't even coming to class anymore. And he said he'd count the house, he'd count the heads. They weren't coming to class. They weren't watching these extra videos that he made to help them learn. They weren't able to answer the questions. These are not people who should be doctors. And becoming a doctor is meant to be hard because it is hard work. We don't want to prep people as though this is Mickey Mouse land and then they arrive in their positions and they can't handle the work. They can't handle the stress, the rigor that's required. Right. But like being a doctor
1: is absolutely not for everybody. Medical school isn't for everybody. Right. But my question, though, Raji, here is at what age does this start? Right. These these young people did not have that happen for the first time. When they were in university or college. So, at some point along the way, did they find other things too hard when they were younger? And did there, were they have lawnmower parents, right? Parents who cleared the path for them? So, if you're a parent, you've got small children. If they came into a class that was just way too hard for them and they were struggling, would you go to the teacher and say that you think the class is too hard? No, absolutely Ever? not. Ever? Like not elementary school, not high school?
0: No, no. So I knew that the only way I was going to go to university when I was in high school, because I'm one of five kids. My parents were manual laborers. My dad worked in a factory my whole childhood. I knew if I wanted to go to school, it was on scholarship. And I knew that I was not going to get a scholarship unless I had the highest grades. I knew I wasn't going to get the highest grades if I were, unless I worked my butt off. And I did. My parents never once... Comforted me, consoled me, told me, "Hey, don't worry. School's not hard, and it's not going to get harder. No, see me.
3: School's hard. Life's hard.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: I know. But there's a it's a generational change, Roger. I think there's a lot of parents out there who, who don't want to see their kids upset or sad or happy, and think that oh, I'll just help them out this one time. But the problem is when you do it the one time, it, ha- it comes up again and again and again, and then you have situations like this. So we can hire and
0: fire professors over their conduct, say, for harassment, for assault. I cannot believe we're in an era where we are dismissing a top professor, an award-winning professor who made, who authored a popular textbook in organic chemistry. We're dismissing him (laughs) because because of his high standards.
1: I know. At NYU, no less. Oh man, this story. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Cindy. That is our Raji Sohal there. So parents out there, you wouldn't do this for your kid, would you? Would you ever complain about a really tough teacher? Or maybe you did. Let us hear about it, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We are 10 days away from Municipal Election Day. Now, that is all over BC. But here's the thing. In Vancouver, this election could potentially be different from all the others. And that is because the Vancouver Police Union... Is considering endorsing political candidates, and that would be the first time they have ever done that, actually. And evidence of this was on display this week, as a matter of fact, when Mayor Kennedy Stewart, the incumbent, and Ken Sim, one of the mayoral frontrunners, actually went head to head at a debate that was sponsored by the Vancouver Police Union. I know, interesting there. So, how unusual. Is this idea? Well, joining us now is Dr. Hamish Telford, associate professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simmy. Okay, so getting police unions involved in endorsing candidates—this hasn't happened before, has it?
5: Certainly not locally or, or around uh, Vancouver that I'm aware of. Um, unions, of course, um, generally speaking, um, in other places uh, have been political. Um, They often align themselves, um, you know, unions in Canada align themselves frequently with the NDP, for example, in federal and and provincial elections. This is not unusual, Uh, but... Police forces and, and police unions are a rather different creation, a rather different beast. And uh, we entrust police officers, of course, to enforce the rules of, of the land, uh, often with lethal force if necessary. And so that makes their jobs quite unique and quite distinct. And, and therefore, the relationship between uh, governments and the police, and as well as police unions, really need to be beyond reproach. And so if a police union starts to get in and endorsing candidates, um, that that can create at least perceptional um, problems further down the line.
1: Okay. Is that why that's kind of been the one line? You're right, because right, many unions endorse political candidates. But because we're talking about police here and law enforcement, has there been in the past a need to kind of keep that separate?
5: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, um it's sort of a game you want to keep that line very separate in that that police obviously are responsible to government accountable to government uh, but police operations are independent of government um of course um we don't want police forces going rogue (laughs) that's why they have to be accountable to government on the other hand we don't want governments directing police forces uh, on how to do their investigations what to investigate who to arrest and so on and so forth. We don't want governments to exercise that kind of power over policing. Right. Um, we have to remember the mayor of, of cities in British Columbia sits on the police board. So there is that very direct connection. Police budget is one of the biggest expense items in a municipal uh, government's budget. Um, and as I say, you know, there could be perceptions of conflict of, of interest if the police union uh, has endorsed certain candidates and not other ones. And let's say their preferred candidate does become mayor, right? Um, and, you know, and the police budget goes up. Hmm. Uh, well, did he, get, did he raise the budget because he got the endorsement? Or conversely, if one of their preferred candidates does not become mayor and the police budget goes down, is that retribution uh, for, for an, uh, not getting an endorsement? We just don't want these kind of questions hanging around.
1: So what is different this time then, Hamish? Do you think, is it because public safety has become such a big issue?
5: I think so, and um, it's uh, it's not only public safety. We've got the drug uh, academic, epidemic as well, um, and I think police forces have generally um, become more than just policing forces, right? They've become uh, social workers, social commentators. They're dealing with a wider range of, of issues than they have in the past, and uh, evidently, st- the unions at least, uh, this union at least, starting to feel the need to to enter into the political arena
1: from a political perspective is this becoming more difficult do you think for political candidates given that usually there's this kind of arms length relationship between law enforcement and politics and now because public safety there's so much pressure about this politicians are feeling pressure to be more involved in that
5: Yes. And I think the the sort of pressure that I could see, you know, there is we know about the broad social movement out there about defunding the police. It's mostly an American phenomenon, not a Canadian phenomenon. Um, But, you know, what a politician running for can for council or mayor. Um, could be, thinking, oh, how do I get a police endorsement? Maybe if I offer to increase the police budget, uh, I will get their endorsement. This this could be a, a lobbying angle from the police union here um, about promising to hire more officers, put more money into, into policing. And then conversely. Um, Since policing is already a huge portion of a municipal budget, a politician who says I'm going to rein in police expenses might not get the endorsement. Um, And and police unions could therefore be um, quite pivotal in determining outcomes of municipal elections if this becomes their practice.
1: oh Yeah. okay. let me ask you this, though. How how effective is an endorsement like that? If you belong to a union and your union leadership makes an endorsement, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in that union is going to follow that, does it?
5: Oh, absolutely not. And it doesn't mean necessarily that members of the public are going to follow it either. There can be a disjuncture between union leadership and its membership, as well as a disjuncture from from the public. And and it can work both ways, right? The the police union decides to endorse candidates X, Y, and Z. And some people say, great, I'll vote for candidates X, Y, and Z. And others will say, I will definitely not vote for candidates X, Y, and Z if they're (laughs) getting that endorsement. And and, and this is, is in fact, a, a risk that the police union... Runs that they become politicized um, and that they lose public trust through the, through this kind of involvement.
1: So then, why do it? I guess is my question. Why risk all of these discussions and have this all happening if a lot of officers might go, "Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with this. Don't tell me how to vote."
5: Yeah, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, why they they want to get into it. But obviously, they are they are feeling, um, uh, I think, threatened or uncomfortable with with the way. Um, the city is governing the police force in Vancouver, and, and they're wondering if this is a solution uh, to some of the threats that they are are, are envisioning. I, I would prefer it if they kept with past tradition and, and stayed nonpartisan, apolitical, um, but, but we'll see what they decide to do here.
1: It is so interesting. So Have you found this municipal election to be particularly interesting? I found I have.
5: Oh, some of the races are definitely very interesting and, uh, and in Vancouver and Surrey in particular. Um, but, but I think the, the issues um, that are involved here, the housing issues... Um, policing issues, crime issues, um, our, our um, transportation issues. They're so important. You know, municipal governments do the things that really are tangible in our everyday lives. Um, you know, the federal government does passports and taxes, and not right. much else for us. But our municipal governments provide all of these local services, the garbage services, the recreation centers, really tangible things in our everyday lives. And I think people are starting to realize the significance of municipal uh, of municipal government.
1: I'm going to be watching this voter turn out so closely. Hamish, thank you. You're welcome, Simi. That is Hamish Telford. He is an associate professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Talking about endorsements, for the first time ever, the Vancouver Police Union is considering endorsing political candidates. That's according to their union president. And so this would be a unique situation. Kind of also shows you where we are at with this municipal election campaign too. Are you engaged? Are you ready to vote? Are you paying attention?
5: This is Mornings with Simi. Okay,
1: right now we're going to talk about your grocery bill out there, but I also have a question for Raji Sohal this morning. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. So do you have, have you made a butterboard?
0: no. I have not made a butterboard. <laughs> so I was
1: enticed by
0: this adult? TikTok trend. I love a charcuterie board. Give me my salamis and my almonds and my olives. Like, no, there's sorry, there's nothing sexy about butter, and I love butter, but like, no, no butterboard. No See, I you. think
1: now that's just you're showing your age is what's happening because <laughs> I had the same reaction when I heard about this trend of butterboards. But I did the barometer that I always do is I go down, I go downstairs and I ask my 25 year old daughter, "There you hey, go. Hey, w- do you like butterboards?" And the enthusiasm with which she greeted that question, and then she was telling me about this friend who did a butterboard and this one that she saw, and I thought, all right, well, I'm officially old because I, you know, had that reaction of like, isn't this just smearing butter on a board and sprinkling some salt on it? But it's a big deal. And I'm surprised (laughs) they have the money to do that because butter is expensive these days.
0: (laughs) Right. Butter is expensive. Some people are using like hummus as a base. They're also using like very pretty garnishes. A friend who's a chef, she's been fancying up her boards with uh, edible flowers. And I'm like, after all that effort and yeah, some of those items actually do cost some money. So uh, no, I'm gonna stick with my regular charcuterie board, but got to find, I do have to find a way though, to curb the spending on those things because you make a good board and it's like 60 bucks.
1: Yeah. And then it's gone in like 30 seconds. Uh, So you're going to help us save some money today. Are you?
0: Yeah, I hope so. Because this food inflation is insane and it's, it's happening across Canada. We know we've heard the numbers, but everywhere else, it's cooling a little bit and not in BC. So that's not good for us, especially with Thanksgiving around the corner. And I thought we needed some tips. I'm actually hosting Thanksgiving uh, this weekend, but not for my, my big family. I'm hosting for family friends that are coming in from Hawaii and I'm off the hook in some ways because they're vegetarian. So I'm not going to have to get the turkey, but I'm going to use, I think, a lot of local fresh veg. I think I'm going to incorporate beans for the protein. I am not, great at that. So I'm going to do some test kitchen stuff. And then even for the dessert Simi, I'm going to go with a home-baked apple pie because apple pie is easy enough with local ingredients. Apples are in season and you can get an amazing result without it being too expensive. So I was talking to a dietitian, Leslie Beck. She's also the director of food and nutrition at MedCan. And she had some good tips on how to save money While feeding yourself well, because that's the trick, right? We can all save money um, on our grocery bills, but are we reducing our nutritional value? That's the big question. So she had these tips for us
3: you know the two places that were predicted to have the highest hikes in prices and they have that's come to fruition are dairy products and also of course restaurant meals we all know how expensive it is now whether it's takeout or dining in a restaurant very very expensive Um, but other foods that have followed are from the bakery category so baked goods um, and also vegetables and when I've I've spoken to some experts who are you know who forecast food inflation and and have done so and I've been told that vegetables will continue to get worse this year We certainly know from the the September inflation report that was released from Dalhousie University that three out of four Canadians have made significant significant changes to how they grocery shop due to these higher prices. Um, people are buying for example less food than they used to a year ago. Um, and some people have also said that they're making changes to their diet. Um, and among those people, there's, there are some that are just skipping meals, you know, just to, to save money. So, so yeah, I, I think that, um, that's, that can be concerning. People are, could be very much missing out on key vitamins, minerals, protein, for example. I believe
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. So people are uh, missing out on some key nutrients because they're not getting their veg in or their protein in. And she says the way to do it for veg is to get in season produce. This is something I tend to forget. Um, But that's like your cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, parsnips, winter squash, apples and pears are in season right now. If you get them locally grown, they'll be fresher, they'll be more flavorful, and you'll get that nutritional value. Here's Leslie again.
3: So the first thing I always recommend, regardless of price, is to buy in-season locally grown produce, you know, and things like this time of year would be cabbage, Brussels sprouts, um, cauliflower, carrots and parsnips, winter squash, beets, apples and pears are in season right now. And, you know, when something is locally grown, it's going to be less expensive than out of season produce, which has to be transported a long distance to your grocery store. And not only that, when you're buying something that's in season, locally grown, it's also at its peak in terms of not only flavor, but also nutrients. You know, the other place to to shop in the grocery store is are the frozen food aisles. So, looking at you know frozen food, um, frozen produce, pardon me, um, which also is considerably less expensive than imp- than imported vegetables and fruits. And you know, if your child's favorite vegetables, for example, or fruits are things like berries or or different things that aren't in season now, um, absolutely look look buy some frozen options and keep those in your freezer.
1: Those are all good options, Roger. I went shopping for the Thanksgiving dinner ingredients yesterday and yeah, oh, it is pricey out there.
0: Yeah. So I never I never shop frozen fruits. I just
1: never Well oh, you should. It.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Instead what I do is I go, Oh, well berries are out of season, so we're just not gonna have them for six months. A um, lot of those but- are
1: local though. A lot of them will tell you those are frozen B C blueberries. You should get them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I did actually, <laughs> this summer, I did freeze some of my own berries, but I, I just don't shop the aisle. And I'm going to try doing that now. I'm going to try should. and just shop the frozen aisle. You
1: absolutely should. Great advice. Thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. That is our So Hall there. If you want to pass along some tips on how you've been saving money with groceries, please do. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Anybody out there having trouble getting their Nexus? Maybe you've applied and you're waiting for it. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians are in that boat right there. Maybe you've got Nexus already and you're waiting for the renewal. Boy, there's a whole bunch more who are waiting for that too. And people have been wondering, what is going on? Why hasn't Canada been reopening the offices on this side of the border in order to conduct interviews for Nexus? Right now, if you want to get that interview... You have to go somewhere down in the States. And it's incredibly difficult and challenging to get an appointment. Well, now we're finding out there's more to this than we thought. This is not just COVID related. There's actually a bit of a dispute going on as to why Canada has not reopened these offices. Joining us now for more on this is Blaine immigration lawyer, Len Saunders. Good morning, Len. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So I felt like this was a bit illuminating because up until now we haven't known what's been going on, but now we have a better idea, don't we?
6: Well, exactly. Everyone's been guessing. I've been told by many of the local officers, both on the Canadian and the American side, the exact reason. They've been telling me since last fall, almost a year ago. And finally, word is coming out from the Canadian government that it's not COVID-related. It's because of uh, weapons. The Americans having weapons in Canada. And still, even with that being said anonymously by Canadian sources, The Canadian government has not fully disclosed that that's the real reason, right? Like, at some point, the Canadian government has to complain on this and say that there's a problem, and that this problem may never be solved.
1: So, from what I read then in this um, article, it was in the Globe and Mail, it is the issue of the officers, the American customs officers who are based in Canada to conduct these interviews. The U.S. wants certain protections for them that the Canadian government is saying, well, no, because they're not working at a border crossing. They're just conducting interviews. So, the Canadian government is saying no.
6: Uh, You know, exactly. And I agree with the Canadian government. Yeah, right? You should not allow American officers to roam around Canada with weapons. I understand maybe it's pre-flight clearance where there's RCMP officers there too. You know, I I still disagree that the Canadian government has allowed that. And I told the Senate four years ago when I testified in front of them about this issue. But that being said, that's a done issue. This is a new issue. And none of these offices are within pre-flight clearance. They're either outside like at Vancouver Airport within the general public, or there used to be one on Main Street in downtown Vancouver, which I think is now closed. And I just, you know, I don't think it's a good idea allowing American officers to be walking the streets of Canada with weapons.
1: Right, so that is the actual holdup. Now we get a better idea, because when I read that story last night, I thought, oh, well, this makes way more sense that we are kind of holding out on this saying, no, no you cannot do that. Uh, So that doesn't also, Len, sound like it's going to get solved anytime soon either. So if you are waiting for Nexus, you're kind of hooped.
6: Absolutely. I get a ton of calls every week on this issue. People like one of my kids, 16 years old, we applied for his renewal a year ago. It doesn't matter. We applied before the expiry date. They've now extended it for five years, his renewal, while it's pending. That's fine. The people who did not filed the renewals before the expiry date are the people who are really screwed right now because they're at the back of the line and those are the people who call me and they're sitting in lines now for hours they're trying to find out how they can get approved how they can get the interview and there's really no quick fix and it's interesting because nobody was warning them that their cards were expiring because nobody was traveling over the border in the past an officer would say hey you know, me your card's expiring in a few days or a few weeks or a few months. You have to do the renewal. So it wasn't until the borders really fully reopened in the spring or summer that people actually looked at their cards and thought, holy cow, my card expired, you know, six months ago, a year ago. I didn't realize it. And then they did the renewals, and now they're waiting.
1: Right. It's now waiting for also an interview for a lot of people. And the only interview offices that are open are down in the States. Um, it's gonna take forever to process the backlog, is oh, it not?
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of our local journalists in Blaine, he called me a couple months ago and he looked to see when the next available appointment in Blaine was, and he said to me, It's in twenty thirty. That's in eight years. And I said, Are you sure? And he goes, I swear it said twenty thirty, the next available appointment. That's ridiculous. It Absolutely is ridiculous.
1: it is ridiculous because I went through the same process myself. And if I fly to Detroit, I can get an interview in the next month or two. If I fly to Maine, I can get an interview in the next month or two. But anything pretty much closer than that, and it just says there are no appointments available for the foreseeable future. So then, Len, what are people supposed to do?
6: I guess just wait. And the Americans don't care, right? It's mostly Canadians who have nexus. It's This affects Canadians who want to come down here, spend money, be able to travel. So I don't think you're going to see any resolution. I think the Americans are going to dig in their feet and say, we want our officers to have guns. The Canadian government is going to say no. And I think you're just going to see a stalemate. I don't know for how long.
1: So it's going to go on for a while then. are you Do you deal with a lot of people calling you up with questions about Nexus?
6: All day long. and. If I had some magical solution, even people who are conditionally approved and they know I know a lot of these officers, they're like, can't you pull any strings and get me in sooner? No, there's no way around these backlogs. It's it's virtually impossible. I'm just glad I'm not one of these people because I use my card not at the border so much. I use it for TSA pre-check within the U.S. So it doesn't affect just cross-border travel, but traveling within the U.S. And there's a lot of unhappy people right now, mostly Canadians, who just want this to be fixed.
1: That is so true. Len, thank you for that.
6: Thanks, Sydney. Have a great day.
1: You too. That's Len Saunders, immigration lawyer in Lane, talking about Nexus. Uh, He fields calls all day long about this. I know a lot of people out there are waiting for it. I'm one of them. uh, Waiting for that Nexus backlog to be cleared. Hundreds of thousands of people have applied for Nexus. Maybe you've gotten conditional approval. But guess what? Can't go for your interview. The offices on the Canadian side are still closed and the ones on the American side are open, but good luck getting a time to go. Well, now we're finding out why. Good article last night in the Globe and Mail, maybe you've read it, saying that this is not about COVID-19 keeping these offices closed or anything like that. It's actually a dispute over what kind of powers those American customs officers are going to have while stationed at these interview offices on this side of the border. That is a dispute, and as Lund points out, it does not sound like it is going to get solved anytime soon. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. How important are kelp Well, they're so important that there are a group of BC scientists who are actually working to find a way to save these forests for future generations. There's a whole team of people involved in this, and we're going to learn all about it right now, actually. Liam Coleman is with us, a postdoctoral fellow at Simon Fraser University's Department of Biological Sciences. Hello, Liam.
2: Hello. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, thank you for being here. First off, explain to us what is a kelp forest? Where can we find them?
2: Yeah, so a a kelp forest is a a sort of underwater ecosystem that we find uh, in the temperate waters all throughout the world, including right here in British Columbia. Uh, We find them in uh, nearshore cold waters, and they are formed primarily by a handful of species of large seaweeds uh, called kelp um, that, similarly to trees on land, uh, can form Uh, really important three-dimensional habitat that can span the entire depth of the water column, much like a a forest that we're all more more accustomed to seeing. And similarly to those forests as well, they are hotspots for biodiversity and a huge amount of uh, marine life, including vertebrates and some really important fish species, including salmon, actually rely on these forests for habitat and also for foraging grounds. So they're actually really important to our uh, nearshore marine ecosystems here in B.C.
1: Are they in danger? Uh,
2: yes, we are learning more and more all, all the time that uh, kelp forests throughout the world, including here in B.C., are in decline. Uh, we, uh, the reasons for this are likely nuanced, and we're, and we're still sorting out the complete, the complete picture. But we believe that ocean warming due to climate change is a primary driver in these observed declines.
1: All right, so then tell me about the work that's being done to try to save these forests, preserve them.
2: For sure. So um, uh, kelp forest uh, conservation and restoration is a great concern in the, uh, the, in the marine community here in B.C. altogether. And there are many teams in different, in different parts of B.C. that are working on this. But, uh, but our team at SFU, um, which is funded by the Pacific Salmon Foundation, is working to develop a novel biobank. Uh, which you can think of as being like a seed bank for uh, for agricultural plants um, on land uh, that we could use to actually sort of back up uh, different um, uh, kelp forest populations uh, and protect them in case anything happens to them in nature. And then we can use those backups later potentially to uh, help restore those populations.
1: Now, are these uh, where do you find kelp forests? Like, are they very important here in B.C.? Can you find them everywhere in the world?
2: Uh, no, you can't find them everywhere in the world. They are—they um, uh, do not grow in warm waters. They can only be found in temperate regions, uh, but they're very prominent here in BC. Anyone here in the Vancouver area can likely go out on a boat, and in different in certain areas you can find the conspicuous bull kelp uh, floating with the large single float that many of us have seen uh, um, near shore. Um, and then there's also a lot more of them in, around Vancouver Island up and down the coast of, uh, of North America, uh, or the West Coast of North America. Um, but, you know, they're not everywhere, and some of the species are actually endemic to the, uh, uh, the Northeast Pacific here.
1: Okay, so I understand there's cryogenic freezing involved here.
2: That is correct, yes. So uh, what's, what's interesting about our, uh, our approach for biobanking at SFU is that we've developed yeah, a, a cryogenic freezing technique uh, which is a little different than what's usually done to store um, uh, kelp germplasm, which you can think of as like the kelp seed. Um, and uh, yeah, we're actually able to uh, to literally freeze um, these uh, this biological material, and and much like in science fiction movies, literally, and then uh, leave them in storage for an indefinite period of time, and then bring them out later, and they should be in essentially the same state they were in where we put them in which is very useful because it means that we can a we can store a larger amount of biological material in a smaller space for possibly for longer uh and we can also once they go into the freezing they're actually very low maintenance so um it's a it should be a very efficient way of uh of storing large amounts of of biodiversity safely
1: can we then with that can we also seed a kelp forest if we need to
2: that is our hope, yes. Um, uh, there's, there's actually a lot of there's efforts going on right now throughout British Columbia to try and work out reliable methods for restoring kelp forests. Um, and uh, we're hoping that uh, that once those methods get sorted out, uh, we can use the, the seed that we've stored to try and reforest these populations uh, ourselves, even if they become lost from nature.
1: Okay, so this seems like it would have a lot of impact all over the world then, Liam, because if we're using it for kelp forests, can it be used for other areas too?
2: Um, the technique that we developed is specific to, uh, right now it's specific to bull kelp, our, lo- our local canopy kelp, but we're working on, on burying it for other kelp species. Um, every organism is going to have its own its own sort of appropriate storage technique for, for biobanking in general. Uh, but theoretically, this technique could be used uh, to, store, uh, to store kelp uh, basically anywhere in the world, I reckon. It probably could be adapted, yes.
1: Oh, that is so interesting. So what about the mm-hmm. threats to these kelp forests? Like, what is happening?
2: Yeah, so well, what we're seeing um, is, uh, the kelp forests in it's it, the 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 pattern is patchy. It's not a completely uniform thing. But in many areas, a a, a, a an area of great concern right now that we do have some hard data out of is Puget Sound, and what we're seeing in places like like that like there is um, is the forests have declined sometimes as much as as much as ninety six percent over the last one hundred and fifty years compared to their historic levels, and uh, it's not. As I mentioned before, it's not completely clear why this is happening yet, and a lot of the researchers, such as myself, are kind of in a panic to try and figure out exactly what's happening, although we're pretty confident that ocean warming is a a major factor here, although it also can be exacerbated by other issues, uh, such as the presence of sea urchins, um, which are uh, really prominent grazers on kelp forests, and if they show up in large numbers, they can mow down the whole forest. Um so uh so what we're seeing is that in areas that there used to be kelp just less and less each year they seem to be coming could be coming back less and less and we're trying to get a handle on on what the, on what's happening there and then try and prevent them from being lost completely.
1: Now this is so fascinating Liam but how did you get involved in this like how did you come to find this so fascinating?
2: So, uh, so uh, yeah, I just I did my PhD uh, not too long ago at UBC um, uh, with a fantastic, fantastic professor named Patrick, um, and I learned all about. Uh, so I did my, my PhD in kelp biology, so I have a strong background in sort of the the organismal biology of uh, of kelp in general. And then I was hired um, by the team at SFU. My current boss is Professor Cheryl Bisgrove at SFU, and um, and I was hired to. Uh, to work on this project using my background in kelp biology to help uh, uh, help curb this potentially catastrophic um, uh, environmental crisis that we're facing Um, and the the community the research community has really only become aware of just how dire the situation is only in the last uh, uh, five to ten years I would say so there's a as I, mentioned, as I mentioned, there's a great panic right now and a great sense of urgency in the research community to do something about this quickly. So uh, I happen to have a good skill set to uh, to be brought on board wow. to, to help with this.
1: Okay, so is the biobank up and running?
2: Uh, no, it is not yet. What we have um, functional is um, uh, we have our, our reliable cryopreservation technique. Um, but we are still um, seeking um, adequate funds and a permanent facility to really get the biobank going. We have a modest collection uh, of germplasm at SFU, but we really do need a permanent space that's larger than our current one uh, to really let the biobank uh, um, uh, develop its full potential. Um, So it's still very much in development, but we're, we're well on our way with the techniques that we've been developing and uh, we're hoping it'll be it'll be up and running in the next uh, in the next couple of years. I'm, I'm hopeful, hopeful,
1: hopeful. Oh, well, that's good stuff, Liam. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thanks so much for having me.